welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Hi, Jillian. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I normally try to intro people, but you've done so much. Um, can you introduce yourself? <laughs> Uh, sure. So my name is Jillian York, and among other things, I'm the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've been working in the space of digital rights and freedom of expression for about a decade now at a bunch of different places. And uh, yeah, right now I'm working on a book. Cool. Um, so I want to start this with like a few definitions, I guess. All right. Um, so freedom of expression, a lot of countries have a notion of what this means, but then there can be very different consequences for this expression. So how do you think about expression and what it means? So I work for an organization that's based in the U.S. And so our free speech work is usually based on the definition of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which is arguably the most permissive definition of free expression that there is. But for me personally, I usually view it more in a global human rights context. So that would be Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCPR, which let me see if I can get this acronym right, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And so that definition does allow for a few more limitations than the First Amendment, namely around um, speech that's harmful to society, hateful speech, as well as, you know, speech that could sort of disrupt everything. Um, obviously, that's not the exact definition, but generally, it's it's still a very permissive view of freedom of expression. And I think, you know, at its core, I would say that the most important part for me is that I view free expression as a principle, not as a law, right? So we do have these legal frameworks for it. But I think when we get into conversations about censorship, people often point to, oh, yeah, but only the state can restrict your speech. And I think like just from the get go, I want to say that's not always the case. If we look at history, religious bodies, the church, the whatever your religious body is, played a role in what people could say and do. And today it's often, you know, it's the state for sure, but it's also often corporations. Yeah, so that actually kind of leads into the next <laughs> one that I want to talk about. That, uh, yeah, I think in, in one of your articles you said uh, a lot of people think of censorship as only something governments have the power to engage in, but the term applies anywhere authority is wielded to restrict speech. And so how do you find authority and when does an entity have it? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a hard thing to to frame perfectly, right? Because even when I'm talking about the corporations that have a huge impact on our speech, I'm talking about the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles of the world, not like your small startup or or a dating site that's meant for like a specific group of people like JDate, for example. And so you know, if, you know, JDate, which is a dating service for Jewish people, if they decided that, you know, we don't want any Christians, that's, you know, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing because they framed it that way. But in the broader sense, you know, I think that an authority is really can be anyone, but I think when I'm talking about it in the in the context of tech corporations, what I'm looking at is platforms that are large enough to to be general purpose, to attract the whole world, to try to, you know, the ones that really have their mission, as I think Facebook's is today, you know, to make the world a more open and connected place. If you're touting that sort of philosophy, then you really need to, um, you know, have your rules stand up to that. And so, yeah, I mean, I know that that's kind of a roundabout way of saying it, but I think a corporation like that, you know, and I think it's also important to note a little bit outside of my expertise that in many other contexts, this can also be corporations like Coca-Cola, which, um, you know, in Latin America have had a history of silencing people. This could be corporations like Shell, which have done similar things in Africa. So 
you know, it varies. It's definitely a fluid definition. Yeah. So if we pick on Facebook for minutes. Sure. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing to do. Sure. We might pick on Facebook <laughs> for many minutes. But like, yeah, so I'll date myself. But I was a freshman in university in 2004 when they first opened up from outside of Harvard to like 30 other universities. And I was at one of those. Uh-huh. And so like, but at the time, I would never think of Facebook as having like any kind of authority or power yeah. to censor. But now it's kind of obvious they do. And then so like, how do you define when they cross this threshold to all of a sudden having authority? It's really interesting. My book deals with, my forthcoming book <laughs> deals with this history. And so I mean, I think people know, I think, but it's important to kind of just frame this as Facebook started out as this um, idea in Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room where, you know, he just wanted a way to to identify the hot girls. I mean, let's be frank, that's what the purpose of the Facebook or Face Mash, I think, as it was first called, was. And then as time went on, you know, you, like you said, it came out to your university. For me, it was, um, it, Facebook launched to my university the year after I graduated. So I was able to sign up with my alumni address like my first year out of college. And and for me, it was really, oh, look, I can find these people that I've kind of lost touch with already. And then over time, I think it was a year later that it opened to the rest of the world. And when it did that, um, it's been really hard for me to go back and find all of the terms of service. But basically, Facebook's very first terms of service already banned certain types of speech. And this is important to note because none of this was required by law. I mean, okay, let me not say none. Of course they have to. In the U.S., it's required by law to restrict child sexual abuse imagery, which I think all reasonable people agree with. So let's just take that off the table. But beyond that, you know, they had some provisions around illegal speech, illegal content, which includes things like drug sales or um, stuff like that. And then they also um, had rules against pornography and nudity from the very beginning. Now, pornography is, again, I think that's sometimes a reasonable choice just based on the amount of bandwidth that it takes up. But they made a very conscious decision from the beginning to not allow non-sexual nudity. So there you go. First instance of Mark Zuckerberg's personal ideology coming through. And then they also made the decision from the very beginning, which probably made sense in context of a university platform, but to not allow pseudonyms or anonymity. So that was another decision that they made. But beyond that, it was really pretty open in those early days. And then what happened was the Arab uprisings. And I mean, there were a few little incidents before that, mostly around, uh, there was a really interesting one in London involving two men kissing, which that was taken down, but they apologized for it. But then when the Arab uprisings happened, they realized that they had to sort of deal with the reality of how their platform was being used. And a lot of times that was violence. Uh, So a lot of times that was violence that was being captured and shared. But sometimes that violence was, you know, violence in the context of an uprising against an authoritarian state. And so they were forced into this position of having to make decisions about, you know, what is gratuitous violence versus what is documentarian violence being, you know, documented for the purpose of educating the public or what have you. Um, And I think that it was around that time that I would say that it started to become clear censorship. Yeah. And there was another shift that I hadn't even thought of before. I remember like when I first got a Facebook account, there wasn't like a newsfeed or a wall. It was really like peer to peer. And it was before I owned a cell phone, actually, like uh, I had Facebook before I had a phone. Me too. And so... It was like a way to communicate with your friends, but there, it wasn't a public forum. But they accumulated a lot of users that way, and then yeah. it became a public forum. Yeah. And they had to kind of deal with that, I guess, but maybe not so gracefully. Yeah, and I think it was around 2010, if I recall, that they really kind of 
became a public forum, I'm using air quotes for those listening, um, became a public forum in my eyes, and that was when President Obama utilized Facebook to do a town hall. And so what that meant for the American public was you had to have a Facebook account to participate in this conversation with the president. That, to me, was just, wait a minute, okay, what about the people who can't access Facebook, who don't have the internet? That's one thing. But then on the other hand, what about the people who've been banned from Facebook? Do they not have rights? Do they not have the, you know, and of course they don't have rights in this context, and we should probably talk about why that is, um, how the law works. But I think that that sort of public forum idea came about for me when they started encouraging politicians to use the platform. Yeah, so... When it comes to moderating, and it could be either content or, as you said, users um, yeah. who you let in, what's the line between moderation and censorship? <sighs> well, I mean, for me at this point, I think I've actually become more uh, moderate about this in my in my old age. But for me, it's when you're not transparent with your users about what the rules are. And, and not even not transparent, but also when you don't get consent from users. So, okay, yes, from the very beginning, there were certain things that they didn't allow, and I accepted that. I mean, at least I clicked the box. I don't think I knew that at first. But over the years, they've added more and more rules and also punishments. Like now when you violate the rules on, on non-sexual nudity, you, I don't think you get permanently banned from the platform at any point, but you get these increasing punishments from like 24 hours to 72 hours to a week to month where you're banned because they want to, you know, teach you a lesson. Daddy Zuckerberg coming to teach you a lesson. It just, it makes me so uncomfortable. And so I think that the line between Censorship and moderation is really about how you set up your platform from the beginning. So, you know, if you're a startup person out there listening, be clear about the rules from the start and think carefully about it. Think about the international context in which your platform is going to be used. Think about human rights frameworks. Um, you know, maybe tailor, like, I would love to see a platform that comes out and says, okay, we're going to use Article 19 as our guidance. So we're going to allow these things and we're going to, you know, Kind of, we're not going to allow hate speech, for example, and here's how we're going to adjudicate that. Or we're going to give users the tools to adjudicate that. So there's a lot of different ways that, that platforms could do this, but I think that the line is really there. And, you know, I mean, I think the other thing that I probably haven't said here is just how much of this is inconsistent and accidental. So, you know, you have moderation of content that is against the rules where, let's say, we disagree with the rules. So I'm very opposed to the rule on non-sexual nudity. But I know that that's a rule. It has been from the beginning. Then you've got the other side of things, which is where human or automated moderators, <laughs> humans or robots basically, are making decisions about content and they're doing that incorrectly. And let's be fair, this is a hard job, whether we're talking about an algorithm or a person. It's a really hard job and it's a really traumatizing job. And obviously these people are not getting paid what they should be. But, you know, imagine you're looking at all of this stuff all day long and you're having to make these pretty much split-second decisions about whether something's against the rules or not, you're going to make mistakes. Um, and so I think that that's a lot of the times where the the most, I don't want to use the word tragic um, unnecessarily, but the most harmful censorship comes in, um, you know, when something that really needs to be there gets taken down in just one of these sweeps. Yeah, and like a few things you said kind of tie into uh, what you published with another group called Santa Clara Principles. Ooh. And so the the transparency and the, like an appeals process for when something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Santa Clara Principles were kind of the culmination of years of work around this. Um, not culmination, they're actually just the next step because I think we're going to push them farther uh, in, the next, in the coming years. 
But uh, yeah, uh, February of one of the last two years, a group of advocates and academics got together and created this set of principles that outlines three really baseline areas where companies need to be transparent and accountable to users. So it's transparency in terms of transparency to the public, uh, publishing reports that demonstrate how they moderate content. So they already publish these kinds of reports when it comes to government requests but not when it comes to their own adjudication of the rules. So that's one thing. The second one is notice to users. So explaining to a user, you know, why their content was taken down and what rule they violated. Um, So Facebook does a pretty good job of this. Twitter does a horrendous job of this. They don't even tell you. So a lot of times you have people getting taken down. They're like, what did I do? I don't know. Um, And even permanently banned without really understanding what they did. And then the third one, like you said, is an appeals process. Um, For years, Facebook would send messages to their users when they took them down that just said, like, this decision is final and cannot be appealed. To me, that's baffling. Um, Due process is a fundamental part of the justice system. And I know Facebook is not the state, but it's amazing to me that a team of lawyers and policy people never thought that one through when they launched this platform. And I mean, it's obvious. Why not? It costs money. Yeah. It's always uh, it's always a cost on your balance sheet, yeah. um, whereas somebody else can pitch something that's an opportunity. Yeah, you know, but if you're paying engineers upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand a year, like maybe pay your content moderators more than a dollar an hour. Yeah, just a thought. <laughs> just a thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of what we're talking about is very critical of the way moderation is handled. But I think like what you're saying is moderation isn't inherently bad. It's how it's done. I mean, I talked to some other people at the office before I had you in. Like, what would you ask her? And people are like, oh, well, you know, uh, how do we not be 4chan (laughs) or something? Yeah. I mean, ideally what I would like to see is the rules put in front of me up front. So, you know, when we sign up for these services, in the beginning when you and I signed up for Facebook, they didn't have community standards. They just had terms of service and it was written in legalese and you had to know what you were looking for to find what was banned. That's just not acceptable these days. Um, But even now when you sign up, you're not you're not like walked through the community standards. You're not shown the rules. And if you were, you'd be like, oh my God, I don't want to use this service because they're so labyrinthine. Um, But I think that, you know, having some sort of forward consent, um, you know, you sign up and you're clicked through the rules and they're explained to you and you have to check, yes, I agree with this, or yes, I'm going to abide by this, even if I don't like the rule. That would be a great way to do this. And I think that then I would say, okay, I'm using, um, this platform is not a free speech platform. It's not making the world more open and connected, but this is a great way for me to connect with my family or my friends or my, you know, support group, whatever it is. But that's not how any major platform operates, and it's baffling to me. But again, it's all about the bottom line, and I think that they know how that would impact users. You know, the other thing that really bothers me is just the sort of centralized snitching model. So all of these platforms, I mean, yes, they are increasingly using automation to flag certain types of content, particularly like terrorism, uh, pornography, But by and large, they still require users to snitch on each other when they think that they've violated the rules. So, you know, they call it flagging, they call it reporting, it's snitching. Uh, And so I have to, you know, if I see somebody on Twitter who's violating or I think's violating the rules, you know, I mean, I do this when they're harassing me for sure. I click report this person and then, you know, some worker in the Philippines decides whether or not they're actually harassing me. Why not instead give users better tools to block other people and really block them, make sure that they really can't see them, or to, in Facebook groups, for example, give users better tools to moderate their own group rather than having this, like, sort of amorphous authority come in and do it for you. I find that just a really strange and paternalistic idea. 
Yeah. So like what kind of tools are those look like? Because I mean, most people won't change the defaults, right? And so the people who make them still end up with a lot of power. And so what kind of tools would they be? And then what kind of default settings would, do you think they should have? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the tools are already there. They're just underutilized. So, you know, you can actually moderate a Facebook group. But again, like you said, the tools are kind of hidden away. So Facebook did this awesome thing a few years ago, Privacy Checkup where they would prompt you to go through your privacy settings and it would explain, it had a little icon, you know, like kind of the Clippy of Facebook. I don't know, is anybody old enough for Clippy? I am. Okay, good. <laughs> if you're not out, if you're not, Google this. So they had this little icon and, and this little guy would like walk you through the privacy settings and show you what yours are and what they could be. And I found this to be an excellent way of getting users to, if not care about their privacy, at least be aware of what they're sharing. You could do the same thing for any kind of tool. Um, I'm surprised that they don't do it for the community standards. It would be great for them to, you know, walk users through it and go, okay, here are our rules on this. You know, do you agree with this? Are you? And they could even survey users. They could actually survey their entire user base and find out what people really want. But instead, they're trying to, you know, kind of create this system that works for everybody in the world. Yeah. So I mean, I think that moderation tools would be. It would basically just be putting the same tools that exist in the hands of users. You could also do something like what Reddit does with upvoting and downvoting. I love that system. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Redditor. I'm not afraid to admit it. And, you know, Reddit, to their credit, they're, they're doing the best on all of our, uh, our rankings. So we do this report called Who Has Your Back? And we look at how companies are being transparent and accountable. Reddit was the only company of all of them that got all six stars right across. Uh, so super kudos to their policy team. Yeah, so I mean, on Reddit, you've got this, this upvote, downvote system. It doesn't always work the way you want it to. Sometimes, you know, depending on which subreddit you're in, you do see like really nasty content rise to the surface, but that's still the will of the people in that group. And I respect that. I may not like it. I may not like that this group exists, but I don't think that, I don't think we should be in the business of shutting things down that we don't agree with. I mean, how do you draw that line? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't have to join the group. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to join the group. And I mean, you know, we tolerate certain things and not other things. So like, a fan group for the U.S. president, who, by the way, I can't stand, but a fan group for him is beyond the pale, but we let religious groups just do whatever they want. I don't think that that's exactly fair. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can find bits and pieces in all of these things that are awful. I mean, that's really what it comes down to me for not censoring is is that. <laughs> uh, I really, I wish I had time to reread this book. Um, it's called The Kindly Inquisitors. Ah. I read it in like 2010 or 11 and... Uh, I wanted to read it and reread it in the last week, um, but the whole premise of the book is that a lot of the stuff are people kind of um, try to put down hate speech or, or regulate it, censor it. But a lot of stuff like gay rights was considered hate speech in the seventies. Yes, and so I think like the kind of the thesis of his book was like freedom of speech or a liberal society means you need to have a thick skin. Yeah. Yeah, there's another book that um, just came out last year or two years ago, I think. Uh, I can't think of the title of it, but the author is Nadine Strawson, and it's about hate speech as well um, and sort of the argument for standing up against it rather than censoring it. And I think it's, I mean, it makes some really strong arguments, uh, one of which is, of course, the, the way that censorship always backfires. And I think we're seeing that now in the U.S. And it scares me because I think that you know, I mean, I get emails all the time from people who, you know, conservatives who feel that they're being more censored on platforms than other people are. Um, my experience shows that they're being as equally censored as everybody else. But, you know, I think that a lot of them are now seeing it as this big conspiracy that, you know, the companies are all working together to, to censor conservatives to, you know, get 
Democrats elected or whatever. And, you know, I mean, I think there's definitely clear evidence at this point that censorship can feed into these conspiracies. Yeah, and it just pushes the speech underground. And yeah. then it's better to confront it in the open before it becomes violence or some other form of expression. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, to that point also, I think that once it does become violence, I think that we can have a serious conversation as society, which is hard to do in the U.S., but about, you know, whether or not that should be removed. Because I do think, you know, right now, like I've been working with the um, the Christchurch call, which is the call that the New Zealand government put out uh, to counter terrorism and and violent extremism. So this was following the attack on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, by a right-wing Australian. And, you know, in that case, it was a first-person shooter video that traumatized the population of New Zealand. And they don't want, you know, the, the prime minister of New Zealand um, doesn't want that kind of content to exist online. And I think that that's a pretty reasonable position. Of course, when we get into the conversation about terrorism, I think it does become much more complicated after that. But I think we could look at this and say, okay, yeah, this may be this first-person shooter video, this kind of stuff that is for the sole purpose of glorifying an individual's violent acts. Perhaps that is beyond the pale. Perhaps that is equivalent to incitement. Perhaps we do need to deal with this at the level of legislation. But I don't think it should be companies making these decisions, and I don't think it should be extrajudicial either. You mean extra judicial because then extra it, legal it becomes like the right word. Yeah, yeah. where? <laughs> yeah, no, I think what I mean is extra legal. So right now what's happening is you've got governments coming together. The U.S. government refused to take part in this process, but I think it's still like 20 governments coming together with the government of New Zealand to put pressure on companies to do something. But I don't like that. I would rather see laws instituted that companies have to abide by than see this sort of um, – we call it shadow regulation at EFF. I'm not sure that that's the widely accepted term at this point, but this thing where governments get companies to do their bidding outside of the law because they can't create laws around it. And I think this happens a lot in the U.S. where because the First Amendment is so permissive, you can't easily create laws to ban certain types of content. So instead, you see the U.S. government going to platforms to get stuff taken down. And yes, platforms can and should have the right to moderate as they see fit. But when the State Department calls up a platform in the middle of the night or whenever and says, hey, I think you should really take this video down, what's a platform to do? Are they really going to refuse the U.S. government? I find that really troubling. And and by the way, that circumstance has actually happened before. That's a real thing that, that goes on. Yeah. And like one of your articles, you mentioned this becomes like a positive feedback loop. Another country sees that and mm-hmm. I go, oh, that's a great idea. I should ask them to take that down too. Oh, yeah. No, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to tell this in more detail in the book, but 2012, and this I think was a kind of a turning or inflection point for a lot of these companies, uh, there was this video that you might remember, The Innocence of Muslims, and it was created by an Egyptian-American uh, Christian who it's just this horrible low-budget production um, that Muslim groups found really offensive. And the Obama State Department, well, the Clinton State Department really, warned YouTube that they should maybe take this video down. And YouTube was like, no, we're not going to take this down. This is free speech. And then there were some violent, I guess, riots in Cairo. And the State Department came back to YouTube and asked them to take it down in Cairo and in Libya. And this was about like a week before Benghazi. So this is really kind of interesting because they, they there was an attempt to tie it to this video. But anyway, yeah, so they, they asked YouTube to take it down in those countries and YouTube did. So this was the U.S. government asking a U.S. company to censor content in Egypt and Libya when those governments had never asked for it. 
I mean, imagine that. Like, I that just blows my mind. And Google's never admitted this on the record, but I have it on good authority. Read the book, find out. But that sort of thing is just, uh, that kind of happens probably more often than we think. And it's really patronizing, this idea that, you know, the U.S. government thinks that people in another country are going to riot, but oh no, Americans, like, we could never restrict that in the U.S. Or, although they didn't, you know, obviously they did ask for that too. That's just the, I think, outside of just content moderation, that's a that's an American attitude anyway oh, yeah. about a lot of things. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're a blockchain company, so we see that a lot with, like, the SEC um, trying to crack down on other, like, China or European jurisdictions. The SEC is really trying to kind of be everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, been, I've not been following the Huawei stuff well enough to talk about it fluently on this podcast, but that's okay. Yeah. But that sort of thing is really fascinating to me. Um, And then, you know, just like by contrast, the lack of concern that the U S government under Obama and Trump, to be fair, has had for like U S companies selling surveillance of equipment to like Bahrain. Right. It's it's okay (laughs) if we do it, but yeah, exactly. (laughs) I say we, because we're both American, but um, (laughs) yeah, a podcast produced by a German company. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to you, but yeah. <laughs> we as in the people here in the room. Yeah. You've mentioned so I want to talk about your book and like the state side of this, but you mentioned uh, like algorithmic mo- moderation before. I want to cover that before we yeah. move on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it kind of reminds me of this talk that I saw a while ago by Hannah Fry, a mathematician, where she talked about cancer detection algorithms. Oh, um, wow. And like so it's really easy to make an algorithm very sensitive. So it'll give you a lot of false positives, um, but it'll never miss something. Um, whereas, like, I think they were showing, like, uh, lung scans to radiologists, and the the humans actually missed, like, a gorilla that was printed on the scan. Wow. Uh, and, of course, the algorithm flagged all of these, but it also flags a lot of false positives. Um, I mean, that's not and, surprising. I guess doctors are pretty tired, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and humans are kind of the opposite. Like, they'll never look at a, a healthy scan and say that it's cancerous. Um, and so uh. Uh, I think, like, some of the the approach they're taking is to have, like, these algorithms that are, just, like, turned up to be super sensitive and have a huge false positive rate and then just give this, like, subset to humans. And I'm wondering if you think there's something that you could do like that with content moderation so that, like, the algorithm can kind of go through a huge amount of data and take off some of the load from the humans but then you have an actual human making the decision. Yeah, so that is what's going on right now with terrorism content, as far as I understand. Okay. I'm not going to have the specifics in my head of which platforms are doing which thing. But my recollection is that Facebook specifically does not use automated tools to take anything down except for spam. But rather they use it for flagging content. So the same way that you or I would flag somebody's violating content, they use algorithms to run that process. And then that content still gets seen by a human moderator. The trouble with this is, when it comes to terrorism, first off, I mean, let's try defining terrorism. Who let's defines not, it? <laughs> yeah, let's not try defining terrorism, because I, I can assure you it'll take us all day or, you know, all year or the rest of our lives. But, you know, let's just say that the rules are okay. Let's say that they're right. They're not, but let's say they are. So the algorithm identifies a picture. Let's say that it's a picture of a protest that has, uh, you know, like, let's say it's a Free Palestine protest, but there's some Hamas flags in the background. Hamas is a terrorist organization on the U.S. list, and so it gets flagged. It goes to a person, and then that person would look at the picture, determine what it is about it, tag it, I believe. That's my understanding of the process. So tag it so that you know why it's terrorism, and then take it down and potentially put some sort of sanction on the user who uploaded it 
depending on the reason, right? So there is context here too. If they were praising Hamas, they're probably going to get more of a penalty than if it, they were just taking pictures of the rally and the Hamas flag happened to be in the background. So this is the interesting thing. I use that example because there was uh, there was a similar example a few years ago, and I believe it involved the PKK, which is another group that's on the U.S. terrorism list. And in this case, it wasn't, you know, in the background of a rally. It wasn't uh, being used for political purposes. It was women sharing recipes. And for some reason, the, the flag was like maybe the recipes had come from the PKK member. I don't even know, but the flag was there in like a small corner. And so these recipes were all getting flagged and taken down because, again, if you're using logic, you see the flag, it is against the rules, must take it down. And so it's this very rigid thing, whether you're a human or an algorithm. And I find that that's where, I mean, it's a problem with the rules, really, but it's also a problem with the the human moderator more than with the algorithm. I'm okay with an algorithm flagging a wide range of stuff and then having a human who, you know, brings in context and subjectivity to the process. But right now there's no real subjectivity to either process. And so it's it's just, it's completely broken. You know, I mean, I think that if there's a rally happening on the streets of Berlin and somebody's waving a terrorist flag in the background, that's relevant information. It's not something to be censored. Why should that be censored? Right. Um, so if we if we switch over to your book and um, kind of the state's role, well, first, a lot of people think that technology is kind of this ultimate force for a democracy. Ooh. It doesn't pan <laughs> out that way, though. Um, and so I guess, like, yeah, can you talk about that? But also, I mean, like, so it's a company podcast. We have to chill a little bit. But, like, we're trying to design, like, new tools for the Internet. But we think at a very low level, like, we want to pass this arbitrary message to somebody else. It's like a bunch of zeros and ones. Um on a higher level, like what kind of tools would you need to see to make the internet be this force for democracy? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure that I believe in tech as a, as a force for democracy. I mean, I believe in tech as a tool in the same way that books are a tool, right? Um, obviously, the printing press has had a huge impact on democracy, both in terms of the ability to disseminate philo- like philosophical ideas and information, but also in terms of, you know, kind of the opposite sometimes. But I think with technology, you have that as well, except you also have this like California Silicon Valley ideology that it's going to save the world. Um, and, you know, you see this in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco. I don't know if you ever lived there. No, I haven't. Uh, I lived there not so long ago, about five years ago. And so this was like before the scooters were everywhere. But uh, San Francisco is such an interesting example. I'm sorry to get a little off topic, but I promise I'm going to bring it back around. It's such an interesting example to this because you have all of these incredibly talented engineers and technologists who instead of building toilets for the homeless population, which is desperately needed there, they're like trying to save the world with an app. My favorite horrible example of this was a few years ago in uh, South by Southwest. This company showed up and they were like, let's make homeless people into hotspots. And they put like routers in their backpacks. And you're just like, really? Seriously? Like that's how you're going to save the world by giving somebody 25 bucks to carry around a heavy router all day so that like rich people can always have on internet access? who probably have it already, like, really? So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's not that technology can't be a force for democracy. I think that it's the preeminent ideology in places like Silicon Valley and increasingly in Berlin, unfortunately, that's about making money and about, you know, like white savior complexes uh, rather than about looking locally. And so I'm always much happier when I see things that are inward looking, when I see, you know, people building things that are not for those faraway people over there, not to say that they don't deserve it too, but 
focusing on the needs of the local community. Um, and you do see that a lot more here than in San Francisco, to be fair. Big around the, like, how can technology be a force for democracy? I mean, I guess it just starts with rethinking how we view problems and solutions rather than the tech itself. Or rethinking that assumption. Yeah. Or that technology is really something that's neutral and it's a tool. How do we use it to yeah. do something that's good? But then how do we agree what's good? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that that's where democracy comes back in because in order to agree what's good, we can't have this be a... And I mean, Silicon Valley, frankly, is run by a bunch of white dudes. I mean, it really, really is. And... That's not democratic. You know, it's a majority segment of the U.S. population, but it's not democratic. Yeah, and it also goes into, like, the inward versus outward looking. Like, this is what those people identified as the problem. And you have these companies like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. They're all American companies. Yeah. And then they try to impose some moderation policy in Turkey. Yeah. And they might just have, like, a completely twisted view of what the actual problem is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and one of the things that that I'm going to get into a little bit in my book, um, because I was able to talk to some people who've worked in the, like, sort of mid-level of policymaking moderation, there's kind of this level of people in Dublin at several of the companies whose job it is to deal with, like, the hard decisions of moderation, but they also are in the meetings where that's filtering up to policy teams. So they're in this really interesting position. I talked to some of those people from various companies, and they were all people of color, and they all felt incredibly marginalized in those rooms. And not just people of color, but people from, I don't want to say developing countries because it's a kind of range of countries, but not from the U.S. or Europe, let's say. And they're in these rooms uh, and they're they're able to share these things, but they don't feel that they're being heard. And they feel that they lose every time that they're trying to make these arguments because the dominant people in the room are disagreeing with them and they don't have as strong as a voice. And so that really is what goes on in these companies where they make you know vague notions about inclusivity but when it comes down to it, the person who's like the policy head for a, a different region of the world is still essentially bound to the decisions being made by the group of white people in California. Or let's say not even white people, let's just say Americans in this yeah. case. Because I think they have actually made some strides at making their teams more diverse. But they're still Californians. <laughs> yeah, they're still Californians and they still went to like, you know, fancy law schools in the U.S. Yeah. Well, some East Coast shade. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a title for your book yet? I do. I don't think I've revealed it anywhere oh, yet, though. Okay. Um, you don't have to. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> um, but you told me it's about um, how social media platforms regulate speech in response to global events. And yeah, and and vice versa. Yeah, so, so I'm really interested in the vice versa part. <laughs> sure. So I mean, so in terms of how companies respond to global events, I mean, the book kind of starts a couple years before the Arab uprisings. I'm looking at like the a little bit of the history. I mean, obviously, you can't cover everything in one book, and I've. I realized that about halfway through and had to pare it down a little bit. Sorry if my editor's listening. Um, But, yeah, basically, I start a couple years before the Arab uprisings looking specifically at some stories from Egypt because I've got a lot of friends there. There were a lot of interesting censorship stories from those early days, like YouTube, for example, taking down uh, videos of police brutality because they contained violence. So not looking at that context, not being subjective, uh, and banning the account of a well-known Egyptian journalist who was sharing these things. And this was in 2007, so four years before Egyptians took to the streets to rise up against, among other things, police brutality, right? So 
looking at that and then getting into the Arab uprisings and how companies adapted to those new circumstances, which really came about in Iran 2010, Egypt and Tunisia and Syria 2011, uh, Bahrain as well. Um, So it's kind of focused on that part of the world, but there are also examples from other places. But then the vice versa of that is so how companies respond to global events how global events end up being shaped by company policies. And so not not necessarily global events, but also culture, right? So I think it's fair to say at this point that Facebook's policies have had an impact on how women feel about breastfeeding in public. Um, Because Facebook shames this so much, because they take it down so much, I think that we are... And and really, I mean, this is happening by other companies as well. KLM, I don't know if you saw this controversy last week where they basically told women that they have to cover their baby and cover themselves when they breastfeed on the plane, which no other airline has that policy, by the way, but it's this very Orientalist thinking, you know, because they blame it on their, oh, some of our passengers might be offended. Who cares? So, yeah, so that's one way that it shapes culture. Another thing is really that uh, people have changed the way that they utilize these tools, the way that they message. So... After the Arab uprisings, uh, particularly the uprising in Egypt, the revolution, let me call it that, call it what it is, um, even though it went (laughs) disastrously after that. After that, people moved to more closed platforms like BlackBerry Messenger and then later on WhatsApp, Signal. And so there's not that organizing out in the open anymore because of the fact that governments and the Egyptian government in particular, responded to that openness by cracking down, by censoring more websites, by surveilling people, by using... Um, I mean, they're they're surveilling social media now, so nobody feels safe and comfortable using it in the way that they once did. And so that's sort, sort of an example of how the platform decisions have actually shaped the way that people behave, the way that people act, the way they mobilize. And there's a bunch more examples in the book, of course. <laughs> We're operating under this assumption that they were safe to express somewhere, and then they get punished for it later. And so they switch to using Signal and, and these other apps. But how do you educate people? Like, hey, maybe you should actually care about this and get ahead of the curve. It's hard. And I mean, I would say that up until very recently, there are still some people who thought it was safe to organize on Facebook. Most notably, those cops that that got busted for that really racist group, they thought they were, you know, never going to get infiltrated. Like, really? You think that you're that powerful? So what do you say to them? I mean, I think that... In America, they, they might actually think that they're that powerful. <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely think they are. And I don't know who's gotten fired over that. But one of them was the head of I- like ICE in a certain jurisdiction. Ugh terrifies me. Anyway, moving on from that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really unfortunate in a lot of ways that this organizing has moved behind closed platforms. Don't get me wrong. I think that Signal is fantastic. I think WhatsApp has really strong encryption. I'm really happy that, you know, that they've managed to maintain that despite being bought by Facebook. But, uh, you know, I think that we do lose something when that organizing goes behind closed doors. Um, and I mean, historically, to be fair, a lot of organizing had to be behind closed doors. That's what was so unique about these platforms and why people got so excited about them was because not only could you watch from the outside, but you could also get greater participation. So I remember giving talks around 2011 and God, like I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I was young. I was on a panel at Harvard with somebody who'd been involved in organizing the civil rights movement in the US. So talk about like being completely out of my depth. And she was saying, you know, but Back then, of course, you had to be in kind of underground situations. You couldn't just be out in the open organizing. You'd get arrested, beaten, whatever, particularly if you were in the South. This is all in the U.S., of course. And then to be able to organize openly on Facebook, not only are you exposing yourself in both negative and positive ways, but you're also like 
There are a lot of people that I know in Cairo who had the internet not been shut down, had that organizing not been happening on Facebook before that, they wouldn't have gone out into the streets to protest. They didn't feel that they were in a position to do that, but it was the sort of combination of it being open and public and the government's so strong reaction the next day that drove them into that situation. And so I do think it's sad that we can't do that anymore um, because I think we do lose a lot from that. And so your question was actually, how do we get people to care about this? I I mean, it's been really hard for me to get keep people to care about reforming Facebook. A couple of years ago, or not even, maybe last year, there was a that movement to delete Facebook after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And I criticized it. I actually think I got like two op-eds published on the same topic. It was like BuzzFeed and NBC. Um, and I was saying, you know, oh, this is a bunch of like tech bros. They're all just privileged. They, you know, they can't. And you know, I still kind of believe that because I think that they're not considering what it means for somebody in certain countries to be able to have this platform, which I, I'm i going to take a step back in a moment and explain why that, but just hold on to that one for a minute, what it means for people in other countries um, to have these platforms, to be able to organize with them. So it's really hard to get people to care about reforming the rules. And instead, you know, maybe I need to be thinking about how we get people to care about building something new. And just to go back to that point, one of the things that I wanted to say there is that the reason that I do this work and the reason that I still believe in reforming this is because if you look at certain countries, there are countries that block all kinds of things. Saudi Arabia is a great example of this. Saudi Arabia blocks porn, of course. They block political content. They block human rights content. They block uh, sex ed content. So regular old websites, the block list is probably a million pages long. But you know what they don't block? Social media. Why? Because it's distracting. It enables people to, you know, communicate with each other, to create fun videos. And Saudis are actually the number one user in the world of YouTube. So they create more content than any other country. Why? Is that per capita or in absolute terms? That's a really good question. I keep using that quote, and I should probably look that one up. But it is true, and even YouTube's acknowledged it at some point. So... By having those platforms, yes, of course, there there are things that the Saudi government requests that these companies take down, but that still means that people can access information and communicate with people that they wouldn't be able to do if these large centralized platforms weren't there because the little ones are all getting shut down. And so I think that it is really important that we reform the rules to the degree that people are still able to utilize these for organizing, that their you know private groups aren't getting constantly shut down, um, as we you know see so often with political groups. So as much as I would like to see something better arise, something that you know emanates not from California and not from all these like white boy lawyers, I also care a lot about making sure that the platforms that people are using have more than a billion users do better. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of our goals here is to not have these centralized platforms. Yeah, for sure. Um, but then we also need to think about like at a higher layer, like how do you implement this proper moderation and rules? And also like, so I wanted to kind of follow up. What do you mean when you say the rules? Do you mean the rules in the place where you live or the rules of the platform? Oh, uh, yeah. So I feel like this actually needs to get spelled out because there are a lot of misconceptions around how it works. So there's one set of rules that, uh, let's use Facebook as an example. I mean, I believe this is true for all platforms, but I know it's true for Facebook. So Facebook has one set of rules that apply to every user in every jurisdiction. Those rules don't change when you enter a different country. But 
there's two elements that do mean that people have different rules uh, based on their location. One of them is training manuals that content moderators use. So the person who moderates your content is not necessarily in the same country as you. They might be in Dublin, they might be in the US, they might be in the Philippines, India, lots of different places. Uh, I believe in Germany, they actually are mostly in Germany, but that's because of the language and because of another thing that I'm going to mention in a second. And so those people who moderate your content might have a training manual that specifically deals with your country. So to understand, for example, how the swastika is used. If you're in Burma, Myanmar, um, where the swastika is a religious symbol, it's not doesn't face the same way, by the way, um, you probably aren't going to take that content down there because it's a picture of a temple or something. If you're in Germany, you're going to take a swastika down because it's illegal, right? And so you have to have some cultural context, even though the rules are the same, the difference is that the swastika or what looks like a swastika is not a hate symbol in that country, but it is here. So that's one thing. The other thing is the way that governments intervene. And so governments have the ability and the right to submit a legal takedown notice to a company to remove content. And the company has the right to not comply with it if they think that it's unjust or if they think that it's not substantial, substantiated enough. But generally speaking, these orders can be submitted by a court, by law enforcement, or sometimes by non-governmental organizations acting on behalf of a government. So this is really common with France, for example, where France has like a certain policy or consideration that allows non-government organizations to operate this way. Um, so like, for example, like an organization that deals with uh, anti-Semitic speech. So under these circumstances, you have, you know, Saudi Arabia or Turkey submitting tons and tons of these orders to different companies to take down speech that's illegal. And that might be illegal because it's porn or something like that. It could also be illegal like in Turkey because it's insulting Ataturk or Erdogan. Now, Germany is an interesting case because, as I'm sure you know, the law here, which I cannot say in its full length, I apologize to the Germans listening, um, but Netzdige, Netzdige for the English-speaking listeners, uh, this law was implemented last year to deal with hate speech and I believe also misinformation. And the idea behind it is that companies, once they are made aware of content that violates these certain policies, and it's there's a specific reporting process that users have. So when I go on Twitter and I want to report somebody for violating uh, German law, you know, I select like the German law that I believe that the user violated. So it's actually quite robust in that sense. Um, but then that goes to the content moderator. So the company has 24 hours to act on that decision. Um, and they're basically looking at the law and comparing the content to the law. There have been a few mistakes, of course, but this law was implemented because of the German government being frustrated by the content that was not being taken down. And a lot of that is because that Germany views hate speech differently than how Facebook views it. Facebook doesn't see Holocaust denial as hate speech. Famously, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has said this multiple times over the years. Uh, Germany does. And so German law supersedes Facebook's rules in that case. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, if you can even take this to the user instead of just like Germany versus Facebook, but Germany versus the person. And like, I remember I talked to Amber Balde like a few weeks ago and we were kind of talking about how like the internet or like Web3, at least as we envision it, there's like a lot of governance tools so that's the people who use it can actually have a say in what these protocols do. And she just kind of shot right back at me like, well, yeah, but the government can still show up with a tank on your lawn. Yeah. Um, which maybe is not so much a concern in Germany right now, but is in other parts of the world. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, I think it's true, like, that these companies, they, they're not governments. Um, and so when we talked about authority earlier, like, I think that's an important distinction to make. But, uh, yeah, in some parts of the world, they, like, what a company does may actually have the impact of, you know, like, especially if they're willing to hand over information to that government, uh, to an authoritarian government, or even just a, I mean... Let's look at the Philippines as an example. The anti-drug laws there have resulted in the deaths of thousands, if not – I don't know if we've reached more than a million yet. Um, but the content moderation issue with that is really interesting because it's not – not all drug-related posts are violations of Facebook rules, but with so much of the content moderation happening in the Philippines – People there, the content moderators there have actually been kind of overzealous in their moderation, particularly when it comes to content coming from the Philippines. And so that's the kind of thing where like, you do have sort of the power of the government, the, the hand of the government over this process. So I think that, sure, Facebook doesn't have a tank, but they do, Facebook and Google increasingly control a lot of the fiber. And I think we underestimate what would happen if the internet went down tomorrow. You know, I think about it like, oh God, that would be nice. Like just a day without the internet, I could just relax. But then you think about, oh my God, all the planes, like, what, how are the planes going to go? Like how are our cars going to, everything is connected these yeah. days. Um, the internet of shit as, can I say that word? The internet of shit as, uh, as one of my favorite Twitter accounts refers to this whole, you know, internet of things, digitization of everything. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, with like the Philippines, it was Philippines, right? Yeah. Um, Moderation question, it, it's an interesting moral question. Like, if you're a moderator there, do you allow this content on the grounds of free speech or do you disallow it to protect the user from like, oh, well, maybe the government's going to see this and actually go after this user we should just not let them for their own good. That's a good point, yeah. And But then there's also the flip side of this. And let me just be clear, as far as I know, this has not happened. But remember, moderators do have access to information that the average user doesn't have. So what if you're an overzealous moderator who's also acting as a snitch for the state? Exactly. You see the drug content there, you hand over those names. I mean, that to me is also really scary, especially because as far as I understand, like Duterte's actually been, the he's been, as far as I recall, encouraging people to snitch basically in, you know, in the offline context. Uh, and so what if you are an overzealous content moderator who wants to snitch or maybe even make a few bucks snitching? Yeah, which kind of goes back to the like Facebook making you use your real name, and I mean, like I think a lot of what we're trying to do is design better protocols so that you can have anonymity guarantees if you want them, um, and you can kind of selectively reveal information. But it's a big problem now that like even pseudonymous, pseudonymous, pseudonymous <laughs> platforms. Um, I mean, I kind of voluntarily use my real name in all of my accounts because it. It reminds me that, that someone can tie this back to me because I think using a pseudonym a lot of times gives you a false sense of security and, oh, I can just write whatever because I'm using my yeah. my fake name. And then I always I use a real name specifically because I want that reminder like, yeah, this is I wrote this. And if somebody really wanted to figure that out, they could. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and just to, to go back a second, there was – you know, when we're talking about the authority thing, and I think that this ties very much to the question of, of anonymity and, and safety. Do you recall a story about like a year and a half ago where they found that um, a member of uh, a Middle Eastern government, I think it was Saudi Arabia, had uh, gotten a job at Twitter and like kind of infiltrated the company? No, I'd never heard of this. Yeah, I don't think it made international news and it really should have. So yeah, they just, 
of course, there's nothing wrong with hiring a Saudi person, but this person was working for the government and they did not, I mean, I'm sure that just didn't come up on any background checks, right? Because Saudi's pretty good at this stuff. Um, that's really troubling when you think about the authority thing. Yeah, of course, these companies don't have that kind of, uh, they don't have tanks, but do they have the ability to screen for spies? I mean, I have no doubt that countries that engage in spycraft have somebody on the inside of all of these companies. There's no way. Yeah, sure. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think that plays into the anonymity thing, too, because we have to remember that even if you are using a pseudonym, they have your IP address. So unless you're really good at this stuff, unless you're always using Tor and you're, you know, kind of not, it's not air gapping, but really like keeping all of your devices separate. You know, if you're using a pseudonymous account on one phone and then you've got your email logged in on another phone, like make sure you're not like using the like hotspotting one phone off the other, for example, people don't think of that sort of right. stuff. So I too, I'm really just open about everything that I do because it's not that I don't care about privacy. On the contrary, I strongly believe in it, but I'm not good at it. And so I actually like just don't say certain things online. I engage in self-censorship really. And that's unfortunate, but it's, for me, it's, it's the safer way to do things. For me, that's not the answer for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think the people who have the skills to really to actually be anonymous online, this conversation maybe isn't for them because they already know how to protect themselves. Um, the problem is that 99.9% yeah. .9 of people think that they're okay, and yeah. the internet is not as friendly a place as they might think it is. Yeah, no, it's not. And and gosh, should we talk about privacy and safety for a minute? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, the internet's not as safe of a place as you think it is. And, you know, some of the best things that can you can do are actually the simplest things, like really strong passwords and using a password manager and, you know, not... You're answering my question before I ah, asked you. I was going to say, what can people do? <laughs> yeah, so that's one. That, I mean, just don't use the same password twice ever, but also, like, just recognize that passwords can be... Um, cracked. And so having a really complex password, which is usually really a passphrase, there's a bunch of ways to do this. If you go to ssd.eff.org, that's our surveillance self-defense project, and it demonstrates um, some of these different things. But I'm lazy and not good at memorizing things, so I use a password manager, which means that I only have to memorize that one long password. I also memorize my Gmail password so that I can reset other passwords if I ever lose my password manager. It's like my little trick. I think we have like the exact same security. Yeah, right? <laughs> but that's pretty good because you're memorizing two really long passwords and then everything else is locked down and encrypted. And so that's a really good way for people who are either lazy or don't want to learn uh, the more complex ways of doing things or whatever. It, they're very easy to use. Um, one password is a, is a pretty good one. That's what I use right now. Another thing that I read recently that's unbelievable. So phones, super insecure. Obviously, I don't walk around with location services turned on. I hate that I have to use it to rent a bike here. It drives me nuts. But I turn it on only when I need it, right? Same. Yeah. But there are other ways that phones are insecure, too. And one of the things that I learned recently is just how easy it is to take over somebody's account if you know their phone number. So one thing that you can do to mitigate this is when you go into your settings for like Twitter and Facebook and stuff, there's two reasons to give your phone number to these companies. One of them is for two-factor authentication. That's okay, although there are better ways to do this, and that's by using like the auth app. Yeah, SMS two-factor auth is like is, objectively yeah. bad. Yeah, it is objectively bad, and it's much better to use one of these like, like the Google authorization app, which is fine. It gives you a number for 60 seconds, and then it turns it over. That's a great way to use two-factor. Um, but there's another reason that you give your phone number to these companies, and that's for account recovery. Don't do that, because it turns out that, that it's really easy to 
kind of take over somebody's phone or just literally take their phone. A lot of people, you know, don't lock their phone well or they let their partner know their passcode, stuff like that. Or, you know, you can just look over somebody's shoulder and see them type it or those awful swipe ones. You can actually see the finger trace. So don't give your phone number for account recovery to companies because that's not a good way to recover your account. A better way is, you know, with a secondary email address, for example. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about the phone thing, like um, like the fingerprint versus a, a passcode can be different in different situations. Like yeah. if you're on a, the subway, the fingerprint is much more secure because nobody can look over yes. your shoulder and see it. Uh, but if you're at the U.S. border and they ask you to unlock your phone, you can just claim, I forgot my passphrase, but they can actually make you like unlock it yeah. with your fingerprint. Or if you're in a so. coma, you know, somebody just takes your, that happened in a movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's true. Like you, the fingerprint. So I do use the fingerprint. It's not the most secure method. Although, like you said, it's better for if you don't type quickly. But the best one is a six-digit passcode. Or if you have a phone, I think Androids allow longer passphrases with letters and numbers. That's obviously ideal. But with an iPhone, the six-digit one is probably your safest bet. And, you know, I think it's okay to have the, the fingerprint one turned on locally. But as you said, when you travel, most borders can have the right. I mean, I think the EU doesn't do it, but most border security has the right to force you to open that with your PIN code or with your app. Uh, sorry, not your PIN code, your fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. But don't never use the swipe password. That's really bad because it leaves a, a literal, like, greasy track of your finger swipe. And right. it's so easy to figure out somebody's uh, – I've done I've done it to, like, two different friends just to demonstrate. Yeah. And then, like, turning <laughs> off location is actually really difficult, I found. Uh, because there's not just – I mean, there is one thing for, like, the right. location. But then I found all these other settings where it's, like, if you turn off location, they're just, like, okay, we're not going to show you the blue dot where you are. Yeah. But then I found these other settings about, like – like your phone is always kind of scanning for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth networks. And even if you're not connecting to them, it's kind of aware that these networks are around and Google knows where some of those are. And so there are other settings I found in my Android that was like, can we send this data to Google? And so I had to turn yeah. off a lot of stuff like, no, you cannot send it when I'm next to those Wi-Fi networks. Yeah. Because they just they know that you're like within 20 meters of this point. Right. And if that gets subpoenaed, that can be used to follow your whereabouts. And that, I don't want that. I, I ideally, like, we would have a hardware switch to turn off location. I would much prefer that than all this. I mean, I find it just really difficult in general because it's several clicks in to to turn it on or off. And I think that the ideal for the companies, even Apple, which is usually better about privacy than most, it's still the ideal for them to have it turned on because it allows them to serve you better things, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, I mean, not only does it does location services kill my battery, but I just don't want to be tracked like that. And so... I don't understand why it's not like a homepage widget where I can just easily click that on or off, but they really want to make it hard for you. Yeah, well, they want that data. Oh, yeah. Drives me nuts. Um, so if we wrap up with, well, are you optimistic about the future of the web and expression? Oh, man. I mean, right now I'm not optimistic about the future of anything, but... <laughs> I'm trying to be. Um, no, I mean, you know, I guess the the one thing that keeps me going working in this space, because I, I mean, I got to tell you, like doing this for 10 years, there's a lot of burnout. Uh, and I've seen a lot of people just burn out and like really burn out and go do other things. And I, it's not like not a day goes by where I don't think about opening a bookstore, but <laughs> really offline bookstore, like no, no Wi-Fi, no laptops. Right. Um, but what gives me hope in this space is I'm like the old people now. I'm the old generation when I go to the conferences and I go to these events. And it's crazy because when I got into this like 10, 11 years ago, I was the youth. I was under 20. No, I wasn't. I was 
So I'm 37. I don't mind admitting that it's on Wikipedia. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, so I was like 25-ish, let's say, when I started going to these these events. Uh, and I was the I was really the kid in the room. These like privacy conferences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Privacy, free speech, digital rights conferences. I was the kid in the room and I was often the token woman on panels. And God, I mean, who doesn't love having a smart 25-year-old woman on a panel? I was just on every panel for like this period of three years. It was wild. And so, you know, I was, I was kind of thrown in from the deep end on this. But now I go to these and I'm like the old white lady. And it's awesome because I look around and there's gender diversity and there's racial diversity, ethnic diversity, whatever you want to call it. There's geographic diversity. There's educational diversity. I mean, it's awesome. And it's so cool to see projects coming out of places like India, but those projects aren't just like coming out of there because that's, you know, that's great on its own, but they're coming out of there and influencing people in the U.S., right? So like you actually have people in the U.S. recognizing that they have things to learn from people in other countries who might have more inherent sense of some of these issues than they do because they grew up with more I mean, more political repression or whatever. I'm not speaking specifically about India here. And so I'm just so impressed by the way that the generation after mine is operating in this space and the things that they're trying to build and the ideas that they have. And so, yeah, I mean, sure, I might retire out of the digital rights space in the next five years. It could happen. But uh, I'll always have my heart in it. and I'll always, like, stay connected to it because I think it's really cool that uh, that we've moved ahead. I remember when it was not like that at all, when it was really just a room full of white men. Well, I would <laughs> come to your bookstore. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, we're going to have, uh, we've got a whole plot going, me and Smack and Hemmicks and a couple other activists. We're going to have like a bookstore, a uh, little cafe, maybe a bar. And the best part is we're going to have a gym, but with golden retrievers. Can I join your bookstore planning group? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'm in. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, what's the best way for people if they want to get involved to work on this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that right now there's a whole lot of opportunity. I see job postings every day and I really wish somebody would centralize them so that they're easy to find. But in the meantime, I think that if you follow me on Twitter, sorry, but really not like not a shout out to myself, but I repost job postings all the time. Um, and then you can also find other, I repost, I retweet other people in my space so you can follow them and get their information, what their organizations are putting out there. So I think that's one thing is just kind of following the conversation because there is a lot of opportunity there, a lot of collaboration happening. Then for the people who are, like, ready to really get involved, I would say volunteer is one thing you can do. You can volunteer. You can go to some of these events that are more, like, more or less free of charge. Um, obviously, travel costs money. But if you're in Berlin, there's a ton of events to go to that are not going to break the bank. Republica is one of the best ones, I think. It's huge. There's the Web3 coming up, Web3 Summit, in uh, just a few weeks, right? August yeah, 20. Two or three weeks. 20th. August 20th. Uh, 19th to 21, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm speaking on the 20th, so I couldn't remember. That's another event coming up. You've also got people go to Seabase for the monthly, I want to say like first Tuesday of the month, the uh, Netzpolitische Abend, where they have, it's mostly in German, but sometimes they have English speakers, uh, and they do just short talks, and then people mingle and have drinks and hang out after. So there's just so many free-ish or low-cost ways to get involved in this space in Berlin. If you're not in Berlin, you know, come to the Internet Freedom Festival, for example. It takes place every spring in Valencia, Spain. I believe entry is free, but you got to sign up for your ticket ahead of time. 
But yeah, I think that there's just so many other ways. And look, if you're one of those people who cares about this stuff but doesn't have time or capacity to get involved, uh, but you've got money, donate. Donate to EFF, but also look at other organizations that are doing the kind of work that you want to see happen and give them your money and support. Cool. And if people want to get in touch with you, how should they do it? Twitter's probably the best way at this point. Um, I mean, my email's out there for you to find, but I'm certainly not going to spell it out for you here. But yeah, I'm on Twitter as Jillian C, as in Cat York. Okay, great. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parody.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 